Thank you. And welcome to the dating game. And we'll get right underway. It's time to meet our first three eligible bachelors for game number one. And here they are. Good luck, gentlemen. Well, let's see. Bachelor number one is a successful photographer who got his start when his father found him in the dark room at the age of 13, fully developed. Between takes, he might find him skydiving or motorcycling. Please welcome Rodney Alcala. Rod, welcome. Well, guys, you're probably wondering why in the heck we played that for y'all. Right, but we thought it would be the perfect way to introduce our next killer, Rodney Alcala. Exactly. So with this clip, we're kind of able to see how he's perceived in 1978. Exactly, because uh, from this, we can see from all accounts, he's charming, witty, attractive, and easy to get along with. Mm, but Dylan, this is evil crimes, and we have seen a lot of killers who are all the above. And would we ever cover a case who isn't the above and a little extra? We do like the extra. But in the interest of time, I'm Dylan Malone, and this guy is Christopher Wilkes, and this is... Evil Crimes. begins in 1968 in Los Angeles. Yes, Alcala was living there with his mother and sisters after his father abandoned them a few years prior. Exactly. So um, now a little bit of background of Alcala before we get in too far about the story. So Alcala was diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder by a military psychiatrist after suffering a nervous breakdown. And it's at this point he moves in with his mother and his sisters. Yeah, and now that we have a little background, we're going to set the scene with the following clip. The image will be with me forever. We could see in the kitchen that there was a body on the floor, a lot of blood. They say a picture says a thousand words, and that image of those little white Mary Janes on that floor with that metal bar that he used to strangle her with. And that puddle of blood, it just looks like too much blood to come out of a, a tiny little eight-year-old like that. We determined that, that she was dead. We started searching the residence. There was a lot of photograph equipment, and all of us were amazed at the amount of photographs that he had there of young girls, very young girls. We found a lot of ID, picture ID of a Rodney Akala. He was a, a student at UCLA. That's one of the first times he ever turned up on the radar for law enforcement. My name is Matt Murphy. I'm a deputy DA for the Orange County DA's Office Homicide Unit. Rodney Alcala managed to give them the slip. As things would have it, we were always 15 minutes behind him. All the emphasis went on, where is he? Where did he go? And we kept coming up empty. So at this point, 
Alcala flees the scene out the back door. Yeah, and we can definitely say the focus is on Tali. They initially think she's dead, but as they begin examining, they can hear gas for air. Right, so at this point, one of the officers actually rushes her to the hospital, assuming due to the condition that she's found in, she does not have long before passing. Yeah, at the hospital, doctors are able to actually revive her, though, and she does actually make a full recovery. It's been noted that Talia had been raped, beaten with a still bar. Her family, wanting to be able to feel safe again, decided to pack up everything they had and actually move to Mexico. Does that really seem like the safest place to go? Yeah, see, Dylan, I don't believe in Mexico. I don't think it's the safest place to go. (laughs) But, okay, so now the focus turns to finding Alcala and putting him on trial for this this heinous crime. Yeah, so like we said, he flees out the back door while cops were examining Talia. He then heads east to New York, where he assumed a new identity, John Berger. He is able to create a life for himself there, makes friends, and even enrolls in NYU's film school. He even is able to find summer work as a counselor at an arts camp for children. Of all things. Yeah, I mean, of all things, you've already been... like. Con- Crimes in the previous time. Okay, but so this is here. This is where we are. So this brings us to 1971, and so the FBI gets involved, and in trying to locate Alcala, they begin putting up wanted posters of him. And there were actually two girls attending a camp that he is actually a counselor at, who recognize his poster at the post office. Yes, and I'm so excited because we actually have documented tape recordings of these girls talking to the FBI, and we're going to play those now. FBI, Federal Bureau of Investigation tip line, do you have a tip? Yes, actually I do. This is Cindy Jones and my friend Jessica Martin. Okay, Cindy, I have that noted. How can I help you today? Um, yes, see, we, we think we know a killer. Yes, and why do you say that? Me and Jessica, we, we went to the post office. See, we were going to send letters back to our home from camp. Well, we were buying stamps. Tell them about the picture. Tell him. Jessica, I'm getting there. Sorry. Jessica tur- talks about a turd all the time, y'all. Shut up, Jessica. Like I was saying, we saw a picture, and it had a phone number on it. In the picture, you said you were looking for this man. Well, we got us right away. That's our camp counselor, Mr. Murder. Cindy asked him about a reward. When I found my neighbor's dog, they gave me $10. Shut up, Jessica. No one cares about Mrs. Williams and Conradian. Sorry, sir. She's younger than me. Well, please give me your camp's information, and we will look into this. Oh, 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 my gosh. I feel so stupid. I should have said this before. We go to the New Hampshire Arts Camp for children. We're not children, Cindy. Shut up, Jessica. He needs the correct information. Oh, she can be so annoying. So you can imagine, I mean, how creeped out they must have been. I know, like you... They like, sounded just, like, terrified. They're just minding their own business, going to the post office, buying stamps, and then bam. Yeah, well, here's the deal, guys. He's then arrested and extradited back to California. Now remember, Talia's family has been relocated to Mexico, and they actually will not allow Talia to testify in Alcala's case. So at this point, they have no way to convict him of rape and attempted murder. 
So prosecutors are forced to allow Kala to plead guilty to a lesser charge. It's so sad. It really is. It's it is so sad. And what's even more sadder is that he was paroled just 34 months after that because the parole officer said he demonstrated evidence of rehabilitation needs. Yeah. I mean, from what we researched, this was actually a popular practice in the justice system back then. As soon as you'll, as you soon will find out, probably not the best idea. I mean, probably <laughs> not the best idea to just like let this guy off who potentially committed murder because he needs to be rehabilitated. Exactly. So this brings us to 1977, where he lands a job as a typesetter with the Los Angeles Times. Now, the crazy thing is, is at the moment he's a registered sex offender which obviously was not investigated during a background check for this job. Most definitely not, but let's let's say this. So, well, he began um, convincing women around the town that he was a professional fashion photographer, Weird. and he would photograph them for his portfolio. So he would go up to women on the street and ask them to take their picture, and they would say, what? Why? And he would say, <laughs> well, because I need... I need pictures. Yeah, my like portfolio. I'm, I'm, I'm building my portfolio. Yeah. So yeah. So this brings us to 12 year old Robin Samsoy, who who was playing on the beach with her best friend Bridget in the summer of 1979. Now, in an interview that we actually watched from Bridget, Alcala noticed them right away when they got to the beach. Exactly. So he went up to them, and he asked if he could photograph them for his portfolio. Well, Robin automatically agrees to do this. So luckily at this time, a neighbor walks past them and sensing that something was wrong at the moment, she asked the girls if they were okay. Yeah, Alcala immediately actually puts his head down and scurries away. So at this time, Robin is about to head to work at a dance studio that she worked at. Bridget actually tells her to take her bicycle so that she can get there quicker and uh, won't be late for work. Exactly. But sadly, Robin never makes it to work. So somewhere from the time where she's leaving she's leaving Bridget's house with her bike, Alcala abducts her. Yeah. And Robin's boss at the dance studio then calls her family a little while later to notify them that she never showed up for work. Yeah, so obviously this guy is stalking this girl and following her. Yes. I mean the entire time. Yes. So as the next few days go by, police are trying to track down the person who took Robin. She was really the only person who saw Alcala and could identify him. At this time, they put a sketch together and they sent it out to people to ID him. Well, just a few days later, a fire crew conducting routine fire safety drills in the mountains found Robin's remains in the foothills. A little bit crazy. And it was reported that there was not much left to Robin's body, sadly. So by the time that the fire crew found her body, she was just bones because of animals who actually devoured her remains. Yeah, it was actually really sad to like, uh, we actually listened to a interview with her mother about this incident. And, you know, when they called the mom and were talking to her it about so it sad. and notifying her of it, it, she kind of, they didn't. They were wondering why, why it took so long. And the mom was very adamant, like, how could you not know? I mean, exactly. she, she has blonde hair. She has yeah. you know, this, that, and the other. They're and like, they were like, there was no hair. There was no hair. There was nothing left to her. Yeah. 
Yes, and but what happens next? Yeah, so a local uh, parole officer sees the composite sketch and actually notifies police that they need to take a look at one of his old caseloads, which just happened to be Alcala. Exactly. So Alcala, at this point, lived with his parents, um, and just a, he was actually just a short distance away from where Robin's remains were located when they found her. Yeah, so with the parole officers identifying Alcala in the sketch and his proximity to the remains, police automatically suspected both. Why wouldn't you? Yeah, exactly. Exactly, why wouldn't you? But we want to note here that Alcala and his girlfriend at the time, um, her name was Beth, were rumored to be away on a getaway during the time of the murder was set to take place. Yeah, and, and also listening to her interview, I mean, she kind of, she even said, she was like, I mean, I didn't expect any of this to happen. She didn't, because she thought he was the nicest guy in the world. Like, remember, he was witty, he was charming, he was attractive. Exactly. So Not a killer. But unfortunately, regardless of that, when police begin questioning Alcala, he really had no alibi for the time of the killing, and also, his girlfriend didn't know where he was. She didn't. No. Yes. And it also needs to be noted that he was out on bail... For actually rape and kidnapping, a case that was just brought up a month before Robin's remains were found. Exactly. So it's like, how did the girlfriend not know this? How um, did... You're not reading in between the lines. Exactly. <laughs> like, and you're not really taking tabs on your boyfriend. Exactly. I mean, he's already out on bail. Right. So you, I mean, you're his girlfriend. Don't you know Don't you that know he anything already about went to jail? Him? But... Yeah. Anyway, so we digress. Yes. So Alcala is arrested on July 24th for kidnap and murder of Robin Samso. But there was a lot of work to be done to prove he was the killer. That is so true. So at this point, the police immediately treat the case as a homicide because one of how they found the remains. Mm-hmm. Um, but two, um, they knew it was a shaky case against Alcala because really at this point, they didn't have, they didn't anything, have anything against him. Yeah. So. They began with the pictures he took. You know, they looked back on those. When they asked him, though, if he took pictures of people, specifically girls and women, he responded with, well, not that I can recall. Not that I can recall. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, even though he said that he was not on the beach the day that Bridget said she was taking pictures of her and Robin, I think we can all suspect that he was. Right. So while he's in jail... His sister comes to visit him. Now, they have a conversation that I don't believe they knew was being taped. In the conversation, they did learn about a storage unit that he had rented. And he had told his sister that he wanted her to get rid of the contents of it. A little suspicious right there. Just a little, right? And luckily for police, they were recording this conversation. Hmm. So, they beat his sister to the storage unit. And once they were inside... They found thousands of pictures of girls and women. Imagine. Imagine that, right? <laughs> so then they discover Alcala had rented the unit just nine days after the disappearance of Robin. Right. But here's the problem. Mm, what's the problem? Yeah. So they actually could not find any photos of Robin and Bridget. Which is kind of crazy. Yeah. But they do find a photo of a girl on roller skates on the very beach where Bridget said he was taking pictures of them. Bum, bum, bum. So there you are. Yep. 
So the police then put the picture of this um, of this girl in the papers, hoping that the girl would come forward with some information. Right. And in their luck, they were actually in luck. So the girl, 15-year-old Lori, sees the picture in the paper the very next day. Yeah, and this photograph was a huge importance to the case. Lori was able to confirm that the picture was taken by a man who claimed he was taking pictures for a magazine on June 20th. The same day Robin went missing. A little suspicious. Just a tad. Mm-hmm. So the theory um, was that the police come at this point was that Alcalo was roaming the beach that day in search of his prey. Well, they suspect that the second time he sees Robin, so after they initially see Robin and Bridget on the beach, mm-hmm. he sees her a second time. And at this time, she was riding the bike to work, and he just could not help himself but pick her up. Yeah. Now, in 1980, nearly a year after Robin's murder, Alcala finally goes to trial, where the jury, yes, they do, they convict him. And they sure do. They also sentence him to death. They sure do. But you know what's really sad? What's sad? Is that the public's relief was very short-lived mm-hmm. when a new report was broadcast that he had not received a fair trial. So the California Supreme Court overruled his initial sentencing, and um, he is found guilty a second time, but unfortunately, it's overturned again. Yeah. So if you can imagine, like, this guy has, like, literally escaped death twice. Yeah, like, like, let's recap. Like, let's (laughs) recap on what we have talked about. So in the beginning... Right. There was Tali. Mm-hmm. And then he fled to New York. Right. Was found. Yep. Came back. Mm-hmm. And then there was Robin. Mm-hmm. And then, from what we understand from the storage unit, there was thousands of other girls. Right. And he's released a second time. Exactly. All right. Just to make sure we're on the same page. Yes. So, I mean, like, yeah. you're, you're talking about, like, the California Supreme Court actually released him from death twice. 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 And we don't realize, I mean foreshadowing there may be probably some more victims that did there not make it. probably are right, right? So, so where did this bring us exactly so this actually brings us to 2003 now this is where the case was picked back up by matt murphy now the prosecutor entered a motion to join robin's murder with four other unsolved murders due to the increasing scientific DNA testing, and similarities between how they were killed. So crazy. Here we go with some DNA. Here we go. (laughs) Yeah, right, exactly. (laughs) So at this point, the police arrived to the decision that he's the serial killer. They always suspected him to be, because I think they always knew it. Right. Um, So 31 years after Robin's sad death, Alcala actually goes on trial again for a third time. Yeah, once again. Now... A dumb twist in Alcala's case is that he serves as his own attorney in the third trial. Why? Why would you do that? <laughs> yeah. I mean, do you it's... think that you can can get yourself off? Well, I think what's interesting, though, is like the things that we've watched was that he had spent so much time in jail. Right. Where he had studied his own case mm-hmm. so many times that he thought he knew every inside fact about how he could trick the police and the jury and the judge to believe him. Right. And I think like, we, we see cases involved in this, even in our past cases, where, you know, I mean, obviously, these aren't the smartest people. So they think that they have an upper hand. They, exactly. they think they're smarter yeah. than the 
than the government. They think they're smarter than the justice system. Yeah. And so they're willing to, you know, take this leap. But at the end of the day, it's so freaking dumb. Yeah. I mean, what happens? <laughs> what happens? <laughs> now, from what we know about the case, Alcala had 30 years to study the case against him. And he sticks to the facts he thought would keep him in the clear. A bizarre decision from Alcala is that in court, he completely ignores the other four counts against him and right. only focuses on Robin. So he's not worried about the other girls. He's not. That there's already DNA evidence that links him no. to these cases. But I think it's because, like, oh, in his mind, the last person he really murdered was Robin. Right. So that's what he has to prove. Yeah. I think it's one of those things where he's just dead set on that's the one he wants to win. Exactly. He doesn't care about that. Yeah. Else. So now, just one day into in deliberation, uh, the third jury finds Alcala guilty of all accounts. Not just Robin, but all accounts. Yeah. So, I mean, at this point, it's like, I feel like the California, you know, Supreme Court should be looking a little ridiculous. I mean, I'm not really... Um, I don't really feel like I believe anything they say because they already released them twice. Right. And I feel like, I mean, going back, like, I would love to be able to see those records. Mm -hmm. they're, they're sealed right now, so we can't actually read and them. And from the other cases we but, studied, how many times has, it, has the California, like, system failed them? Yeah. I mean, it, just think about Ed Kimber. Exactly. I mean, exactly. He, it fails uh, pretty much every time. <laughs> every single time. <laughs> But, Christopher, so what happens next? Yeah, so remember, the eight-year-old from the beginning, Talia Shapiro. Well, she makes a surprise appearance at the courtroom, where Alcala actually took to apologizing for what he had done. Which is kind of weird. It's very weird. It's very weird. So, I mean, yes. like, here you are talking to a person that literally raped you and mm -hmm. tried to murder you. And her you. parents refused to let her come to come back to the U.S. to actually testify against him in the first in the case, first yeah. which probably would have put him behind bars to begin with. Yeah. But anyway, so Tali notes that in an interview, she had no idea what he actually said to her because she was so unfocused on what he was actually saying to her, she couldn't even hear him. So she was such in shock that this man had done so many other evil acts after what he had done to her and she even said that it should have stopped with her. And in the court cases that we listened to and the, the different scripts that we listened to, she was appalled by the fact that he was able to do what he had done to her to other women. Yeah. And not only do what he had done, but actually kill them. Right. And I think it's a, it's it's almost like a, a good notion of like Talia's resilience mm -hmm. in, in, in what had happened. And she did feel like she wanted to be the martyr. She wanted to be the person that was the, so. the kind of the last step, but she couldn't, you know? Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, at this point, obviously, as we all know, the jury did sentence him to death for the third time. The third time. But luckily, now he does remain on death row at San Quentin uh, State Prison. He does. And that was pretty recent. So if you get an inkling to travel to the San Quentin State Prison... You might be able to talk to him. Just go talk to him. See what see what's really up in his world. Uh, I'm pretty sure he probably will deny everything. Like <laughs> he probably other, will. Like all of our other killers. But, you know, we found this case extremely interesting. Um, 
and we thought it was a really good story to play off of from one of Valentine's episodes and yes. then our crazy episode with Ed Kimber that was just a little out of the norm. So we kind of wanted to bring it back a little bit. Right. And I, and I think it's also crazy. I mean, you, you see how someone so charismatic can actually be so evil. Uh, yes. You know, like looking back on like the dating game. Uh, and please go look at that video. Like we're playing the clip for you guys, but go look at the YouTube video and see what he looks like. Because he looks like a normal guy. He looks I mean, like a normal guy. Like someone that you would just see, you know, day to day. Yeah. But, uh, someone you work with, all that, and it just shows you you never know who never. your friends are. <laughs> your best friend could be plotting your death. Exactly. Exactly. But until next time. Yes. So I'm Christopher Wilkes. I'm Dylan Malone, and this is Evil Crimes. Thank you.